1643, the English Parliament created a council. That council was made up of 121 ministers, 10 members of the House of Lords, 20 members of the House of Commons, and 8 representatives from Scotland, particularly the church in Scotland. And they were commissioned to form this assembly to advise the Church of England on how to restructure doctrinally along more Puritan and classic Reformed lines. Now, the assembly met at Westminster Abbey in London over the course of several years, and these great men were virtually unanimous in their support for a strong Calvinist position concerning salvation from sin. They rejected what they viewed as the errors of Arminianism and the heresy of Roman Catholicism. At the end of several years' labor, they presented their finished work to Parliament, and because of their meeting place, the document was named the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, it is certainly not an infallible document, since only Scripture is infallible, and it doesn't account for the past almost 400 years of biblical study and understanding. But it does contain profound theological explanations and nuances, and it is incredibly precise particularly concerning the nature of salvation from sin. And on that topic of soteriology, of the study of salvation, the Westminster Confession of Faith is still the gold standard today. And from the Westminster Confession of Faith, the assembly quickly developed a summary of the confession given in the form of 107 questions and answers, more popularly known as the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And of course, the most famous question in the Catechism is the first one. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, many of you are familiar with that, but not so many are familiar with the longer version from the actual confession of faith. Chapter 2, paragraph 2, concerning the glory of God. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is alone, the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsel, counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands, To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. That is a short statement concerning the fact that God is filled with glory and is deserving of worship as a result. And that's where we turn our thoughts this morning, that is to the glory of God. We speak generally of the glory of God, but this morning we're going to look particularly at the glory of God the Father as we consider John 17. Now, as you recall, last week we introduced John 17 to begin a new series that we're calling Blessed Assurance. Blessed Assurance is it's named such because John 17, the great high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ, is absolutely packed with assurances of the permanence and the security of our salvation in Christ. 
And in fact, we said that we're going to look at John 17, not verse by verse like we normally would, because uh, it's arranged in such a way that you can use topics. And so we're going to look at this topically. And what we said we're going to do is we're going to examine objective evidences of salvation, specifically 13 of them, that you need something that is outside yourself. We need objective evidence that our salvation is secure because subjective evidence, experiential evidence, emotional evidence is very unreliable. And for example, when I was a little kid, some around me tried to assure me of my salvation by pointing back to a particular uh, emotional experience that I had at a church camp as a small child. And what I was told was, see, you are a Christian because that was the experience where you were cried, where you cried and you were emotional. But I cried and I was emotional at the final episode of Downton Abbey. That doesn't mean I'm saved. By the way, that was the same experience as a little kid in which I was convinced that God told me to be a professional baseball player. And we all see how that worked out. And so, no, you can't rely on emotion. You can't rely on experience. We need something more reliable. To generate emotion is easy. To generate assurance is a little bit more difficult. And so this morning, our first objective evidence that we'll examine is that you have blessed assurance. Here's our evidence. Because of the Father's glory. Because of the Father's glory. This has nothing to do with you. This is all about God. Now, I came upon a little problem this morning because basically I have one point to make, and that's it. And so I can at least give the appearance of earning my paycheck. We're going to work our way toward that one main point at the very end. And so we'll work our way toward John 17, and here's how we'll organize our thoughts. We'll look at the Bible's main point, Christ's main point, salvation's main point, and then we'll get to our main point. How about that? So we're going to start big and work our way smaller, working toward John 17. First, let's consider the Bible's main point. Now, I've made the case for you many times in the past that the main theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God. That's very clear all the way from Genesis to Revelation. I won't repeat all of the evidence for that. The Bible is the story of the establishment of God's kingdom in and through Jesus Christ. But what's the reason for that theme? What's the reason for the kingdom? What's the point? What's the purpose of the kingdom? Well, the great King David, his prayer of 1 Chronicles 29, tells us what the point of the kingdom is. 1 Chronicles 29, 11, <clears throat> David says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, And you are exalted as head above all. The kingdom of God is to display the glory of God. And so we might rightly say that the theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God, but the point of the Bible is the glory of God. Does that make sense? The kingdom is the vehicle upon which the glory of God rides. Now, if that's the case, we would expect Scripture to have something to say about the glory of God. The glory of God speaks of his weightiness, speaks of his importance. And in ever so brief terms, how might we summarize what the Bible says about the glory of God? Well, let's just try to give a brief summary. And I'll just give you a little list. First of all, the glory of God is aggressive glory. 
It's aggressive glory. When Israel was getting ready to be rescued by God, one of the purposes was for God to take on the most powerful human being on earth, that is Pharaoh, and defeat him. Nobody else on earth was more powerful. And God said in Exodus 14, 4, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And here it is. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. What was the purpose of the Red Sea? Yes, it rescued Israel. That was incidental. The big purpose was for God to get glory over the most powerful man on earth. So it's aggressive glory. We also might say it is observable glory. It's observable glory. Exodus 16, verse 10, And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Now, God is spirit. He is invisible. But he manifests his glory in observable ways all through the Bible. And of course, the greatest manifestation of his glory is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But staying to the Old Testament for now, we might also say this. It is terrifying glory. It's terrifying glory. Exodus 24, 17. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And the glory of God is never to be taken lightly. It's deadly and it's fatal to underestimate God's glory. We might also say it's overwhelming glory. It's overwhelming glory. Exodus 40, verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The, the glory of God was unapproachable and is unapproachable unless provision is made, unless purity is made, unless holiness is sought after. It's overwhelming glory. We might also say it is blessed glory. It's blessed glory. Leviticus 9.23 And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and when they came out they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. So to be in the presence of the glory of the Lord as a believer is also associated with the glory and being blessed by the Lord. Glory and blessing go together. We might also say it is consuming glory. It's consuming glory. God said in Numbers 14.21 but truly, as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. God predicts a coming day when every single thing, every single person on earth will be filled with his glory. We could also say it is revealing glory. It's revealing glory. Joshua told the thief Achan in Joshua seven nineteen. he said, Give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Tell me now what you have done. No sin will hide from the penetrating light of the glory of God. There is no place to hide in all the universe. We might also say it is proclaimed glory. It is proclaimed glory. First Chronicles 16, 24, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. By the way, the glory of God is the primary message we are to carry to the nations. That's the message. We might also say it is valuable glory. It's valuable glory. First Chronicles 16.29 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. 
To ascribe glory to God means to give Him glory. And this goes, according to this verse, beyond just our words. We give to the Lord because of His glory. In other words, we demonstrate our belief in His value by giving up something of value. We could also say it is protective glory. It's protective glory. For the one who loves the Lord, we can join the psalmist in Psalm 3, verse 3, in saying, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. He's our glory. He's our shield, the one who protects us. To put it this way, we're hidden behind the impenetrable barrier of the glory of God, of his splendor. We could also say it is verifying glory. It is verifying glory. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Someone can ask the question, how can I verify that God exists? Look up! The heavens verify the glory of God. We could also say it is lovely glory. It's lovely glory. Psalm 26, verse 8, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. The true believer is drawn to the glory of God. We long to see His glory, to bask in His glory. How about this one? We could say that it is loud glory. It's loud glory. Psalm 29, verse 3, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. It doesn't say the glory of God is whispered. It's thunder. His glory is not silent glory. In fact, we're not commanded to think the glory of His name. Psalm 66, 2 commands us to sing the glory of His name. And something we're not used to in our culture, but very often in the book of Psalms, we're told to shout the glory of God. And we're, we get all freaked out when we do that here. We turn in Pentecostal. Well, sometimes maybe shout the glory of God. We could do it in some sort of organized fashion or something that will make us feel better. But listen, so there it is. Psalm 71.8, listen to this. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all day. Not just my mind. I'm speaking, I'm singing, I'm saying the things that are glorious about God. How about this one? It is heavenly glory. It's heavenly glory. Psalm 73, verse 24. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Heaven itself is such a reflection of the glory of God that the psalmist simply simply nicknames heaven glory. It is Eternal glory. It's eternal glory. Psalm 104, verse 31, may, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. The glory of God never began. It's never developed. And it will never end. The glory of God reflects the fact that He is the one who was, who is, and who is to come. And God will have glory whether mankind wants Him to or not. And all that God does is to demonstrate His eternal glory. We could say this, it's exclusive glory. It is exclusive glory. Psalm 115, verse 1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And why does all glory go to God? Verse 3 of Psalm 115 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. He alone makes all the decisions. We could say it is triumphant glory. 
It's triumphant glory. Psalm 149, verse 5. Let the godly exult. It's a word that means triumph in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. In your most personal moments, in the quiet of laying on your own bed, we exult, we triumph in the glory of God, thinking on God's might and His power and His protection and His love. In God's glory, we are triumphant. It is mysterious glory. It's mysterious glory. Psalm 25, 2. It is the glory of God to conceal things. Listen, there's a serious theological fallacy that says, if I can't figure it out, it must not be true. And for example, someone might say, if I can't figure out how God is 100% responsible for salvation and how I am 100% responsible to believe, yet I can't believe unless God empowers me to believe, then that can't be true because my mind can't fathom it. Listen, if your mind could fathom it, either you are God or God is not God. It is unshared glory. It's unshared glory. Psalm 42.8, my glory I give to no other. Isaiah 42.8, rather. My glory I give to no other. Now, yes, he may extend the benefits of his glory to us as believers in Christ. He even calls us glorified in Romans 8. But any glory we have, listen carefully, is only reflected glory. It's not our own. You have no glory. God alone has glory and he doesn't share it. You may reflect it, but he will never share it. We could say this, it is rescuing glory. It's rescuing glory. God promises future Israel in Isaiah 60 verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And in fact, the very next verse says that when darkness is everywhere, quote, the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. In other words, the glory of God is like the dawn breaking into the spiritual darkness. It rescues. We could say this, it is dangerous glory. It is dangerous glory. Jeremiah thirteen sixteen. give glory to the Lord your God before he brings the darkness. If you refuse to give glory to God, this is dangerous business because God will be glorified and you will glorify him either by highlighting his kindness or by highlighting his wrath. One of the other, one or the other. Speaking of highlighting his kindness, it is humbling glory. It's humbling glory. At the end of Ezekiel chapter one, when Ezekiel has seen the vision of the glory of God, verse 28 says, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. The glory of God puts us in our place, flat on our face, in front of his glory. We could say this. It is not just dangerous glory. It is lethal glory. It's lethal glory. Ezekiel 28, verse 22, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon, and I will manifest my glory in your midst. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and manifest my holiness in her. In this prophecy against the wicked city of Sidon in Phoenicia, God is basically saying, The last thing you will ever see is my glory, and it will be fatal. It is what we might call anticipated glory. It's anticipated glory. Zechariah 2 promises that in the future, Jerusalem will be thriving and prosperous and safe. 
Zechariah 2, 4 and 5, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. There's an anticipation of the coming glory of God. And that's just the Old Testament. And really, in the New Testament, all other expressions of the glory of God are overwhelmed and overshadowed by the ultimate manifestation of God's glory. If you're counting, this is number 25. It is, of course, messianic glory. Messianic glory in Christ is fulfilled the proclamation of Psalm 24, 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. But we're going to talk about Christ's glory next week. So I won't go down that road right now. So the Bible's main point is clearly the glory of God. Now let's consider Christ's main point. And this brings us now to John 17. Because the glory of God the Father is the clear priority of Jesus Christ. John 17 verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. At the outset, it becomes extremely clear what Jesus' priority is. And he says, the hour has come. It's time for the arrest, for the trial, for the death of Jesus Christ, as predicted countless times in the Old Testament. And the main concern of Jesus Christ is that he might glorify the Father in this act of obedience. The eminent David Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, I have no hesitation in saying that most of our troubles as Christian people and the whole state of the church today is to be explained very largely by our failure to consider the plan of salvation as a whole. Now, what did he mean by this? What he meant was that the evangelical church is beset by a tendency to look at the gospel of Jesus Christ solely in terms of what it means to me. And what it does for me. If I could be blunt about this to save time. The gospel is for God long before it was ever for you. Because in the gospel the glory of God is revealed. Speaking of the gospel. This is why Charles Wesley penned in his hymn. And can it be that I should gain. He said tis mercy all immense and free. This is why Hebrews 2.3 describes the gospel as so great a salvation. And yet we want to boil it down to some little tiny thing that's just about me. By the way, this is one of the main reasons that rejecting the gospel is such a heinous offense against God. Because you're essentially rejecting that which was designed to honor him and to bring glory to him and to bring praise to him. What the person who rejects Christ is saying, I do not want to worship the one true living God. I will not bend my knee to the only worthy king. I will not declare his might and his majesty. I will not acknowledge his love, his kindness, his mercy, his grace, his beauty, his majesty. I will not glorify God. I will not glorify God. I will not glorify God. Now, if you were God, what do you do with people like that? You put them in hell. And what are they doing there? They are glorifying God. They are glorifying His wrath and His justice. Well, you will bring glory to God either through His mercy or through His wrath. 
and Jesus is imminently and and his first priority, his first concern is the glory of God. In fact, further highlighting the glory of God as his priority here. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. God is the supreme ruler of the universe. Why? He made it. That makes him the ruler. He's not just the biggest among a pantheon of gods. He's the only true God. All other gods are dead. They're lifeless. They're useless. They're without hearing, without sight, without speech. He's the only true God and he alone possesses truth and is all that is true. And Jesus then tells us what his earthly mission focused upon in verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. We ought to get rid of the notion that Jesus was in heaven only thinking about you when he came to earth. He was in heaven thinking about glorifying his Father. And that's why he came to earth. Christ here is proclaiming that his mission has been accomplished, that the mission was to bring glory and honor to the Father through obedience to the Father's plan. By the way, you notice the great confidence with which he speaks. He speaks as one who has already gone to the cross, though he has not yet accomplished it. But we see here his 100% confidence that he will fulfill the Father's plan all the way to death. And Jesus proclaimed that his mission was a success. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people who, whom you gave me out of the world. It's a success. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. What this is speaking of here specifically Christ has manifested the name of God first to his disciples. Then he manifested the name of God to all who were given to him, as well as all those who would be saved in the future, all the way at the very end, verse 26. I made known to them, that's us, or first the disciples, then all who would believe, and now us, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Has that come true? Yes, it has. We're here. And we know the name of God the Father because of Christ. What does it mean to manifest the name? To manifest the name of God carries the idea of revealing the essential nature of God to his hearers. Meaning to manifest the name of God is to reveal the glory of God. In the book of Exodus, when Moses desired and asked Show me your glory. How did God show him his glory? Primarily through words, through a description. And in this prayer, Jesus addresses his father in two ways not recorded anywhere else in the Gospels, which tells us his priority was the glory of the father. Verse 11, he addresses him as holy father. This is the only time in the Gospels Jesus ever addresses God in this specific fashion but it is similar to how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed, same root word, holy is your name. And yet this is the only time he addresses God this way that's recorded. And then in verse 25, again, in a way that's not found anywhere else in the Gospels, he says, O righteous Father. This title proclaims the character of God in contrast with the character of the world, the character of sinful humanity, of all who are in desperate need of righteousness. And so it's very clear that the priority of Jesus Christ, the main point of Christ in this prayer, is his Father's glory. 
Now, here's an important question. What's our background? What's our context? What's our focal point when we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ? If, on the one hand, the background or the context or the focal point of the gospel of Christ is simply that our sorrows and our difficulties in life somehow drove Jesus to die on the cross so that we could be happier, so that we could get our lives together, then our faith is shallow, and who is it centered upon? Me. This is weak, and this is a superficial sentiment. And it's the same sentiment that led to the song by Hillsong called What a Beautiful Name, in which we hear the infamous line supposedly about Jesus, quote, you didn't want heaven without us. Boy, that betrays a completely man-centered thought concerning salvation, uh, especially, by the way, in light of John 17, 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Is there any mention of Jesus needing us in heaven? He doesn't need us. But if the background or the context or the focal point of the gospel of Christ is that we are to be crushed and we're to be demolished by the fact that our sin and our rebellion has debased and degraded the very glory of God, but that in Christ we can become those who would exalt the glory of God and His beauty and His majesty. Now, the gospel becomes much, much more about how we can be transformed into worshipers to rightly glorify God, not how somehow that heaven would be so much better with you in it. Christ's main point in his ministry and in this prayer is the Father's glory. The Bible's main point is the Father's glory. Christ's main point is the Father's glory. Anyone want to take bets on what salvation's main point might be? Well, let's look at it. Salvation reveals the glory of the Father. How? Well, let's just make another list. First of all, salvation displays the holiness of God and the righteousness of God. And we'll put those two together. The holiness and the righteousness of God. Verse 11, verse 25, Jesus addresses his Father as Holy Father and O righteous Father. The holiness of God and the righteousness of God are extremely connected. And we might say it this way, the righteousness of God flows from his holiness as his holiness encompasses all that God is. Now, the holiness of God is obviously an endless treasure of riches, but we could briefly describe holiness like this. The holiness of God describes his total uniqueness, his total majesty, and his total purity. It describes his total uniqueness. God is totally unique. The only way to define God and God's holiness is by God and by God's holiness. There is no comparison to God. The only thing to compare to God is God. There's no other comparison. He's totally unique. We also see from Scripture that not only is God totally unique, God possesses total majesty. The Hebrew word for this, ga'on, is the, it's a word used several dozen times to describe his majesty, and it basically means his height, his loftiness. And it speaks of his imminence, of his splendor. Not only is God totally unique and God has total majesty, but God possesses total purity. Habakkuk 1.13 says that God is of purer eyes than to see evil. If God is truly God, then he cannot and he will not abide with sin. 
That's the holiness of God. And we can, we, out of the holiness of God flows then the righteousness of God. Psalm 717 says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. This Hebrew word is one of the most prominent and important Hebrew words in the Old Testament. The core meaning of this word has to do with that which is accurate, that which is correct, that which is straight. And listen, it's not just that God determines what is accurate, determines what is correct, determines what is straight, but he is the very essence of what is correct, what is accurate, what's straight. His righteousness means that God cannot, will not abide with and coexist with sin. In other words, God cannot say, I will simply look the other way. Yes, people have rebelled and sinned against me and my righteousness, but I'll just coexist with them in the creation that I made. What would we call God if he did that? We would call him Santa Claus. He is not Santa Claus. But how does salvation display and demonstrate the holiness and the righteousness of God to his glory? Well, the fact that there is a plan of salvation from sin highlights the fact that God will not ignore sin. He's perfectly consistent with his own holiness, with his own righteousness. And in the plan of salvation, guess what God is doing? He is conforming countless believers into the very righteousness, into the very holiness, which he alone possesses, such that we may someday freely abide in the very presence of the glory of God without fear and in total safety to bask in the pleasure of his very essence. Here's a second way salvation displays the glory of God, displays the mercy of God. Perhaps we're more familiar with this. It displays the mercy of God. Deuteronomy 4.31 says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. Again, another important Hebrew word. It's a word that means full of mercy, and it means sympathy or compassion. And in fact, it's from a root word that means to greet someone with love. Have you ever greeted someone and you get ice cube stares back? And you go, well, I guess there must be something going on there that I don't know about, especially men. We never know why. It's just we're, we're, we're out there and we don't understand. But mercy says, I'm greeting you with love. In fact, the mercy of God is the fact that he does not give you what you deserve. Instead of giving you what you deserve, which is total separation from the love and kindness of God to bless and keep, he's greeted you with love. Now, the Lord Jesus himself was concerned that we understand mercy and what it means to be greeted with love. And so he told a story. The greatest illustration ever of God's mercy in Luke 15, the familiar story of the son of a wealthy landowner who demanded his full inheritance up front, leaving his father disgracefully and sinfully. And when the son had spent all his money on sin and debauchery and was reduced to feeding pigs for so little money that the pig's food was starting to look delicious to him. He came to his senses. He determined to go back home and he believed that the best he could do and hope for was to be hired as a servant because he said to himself, I am no longer worthy to be his son. Luke 15, 20 says, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. In other words, he greeted him with love that he didn't deserve. And the father ordered a great celebration for the return of his lost son. That is mercy. That's mercy. 
And how does salvation display the mercy of God? The mercy of God is God running to us, coming to us when we did not deserve His kindness and His compassion. Romans 5 verse 6 says, while we were still weak, it's a word that means helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. By the way, someone might ask, why did God ever allow sin into His creation in the first place? God never touches sin. He never endorses sin. But in his mysterious sovereign will, sin was introduced by means of the wicked angel Satan. And because sin exists, God may glorify and highlight what? His mercy. Because without sin, mercy doesn't have a stage upon which to glow. Salvation displays the love of God. The love of God. We're going to devote an entire message to that as a proof of assurance But for the moment, suffice to say, it is theoretically possible to show mercy without love. What do I mean? Well, when a state governor grants a stay of execution of a convicted murderer, this is an act of mercy. But no one would say the governor loved this man and therefore showed mercy. But God's mercy toward us is grounded in and founded first in love toward us. And remember, the love of God toward us is, this is important, the love of God toward us is not the result of Christ's death on the cross. Christ's death on the cross is the result of God's love for us. That's an important distinction. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Salvation displays the love of the Father because his love is not simply a concept or an affection. His love was expressed in sacrifice, in giving up that which was most precious to him, and that is his Son. How about this? Salvation displays the justice of God. The justice of God. From a human standpoint, there's a theological puzzle here. Romans 3.26, speaking of salvation offered by faith in Jesus Christ, says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, what's the puzzle? That God must make a way of salvation from sin in which he maintains his perfect justice while also cleansing and justifying the ungodly. Or to put it in terms we're more familiar with, he must punish sin because he's just, and yet he must provide a way for the sinner to not be punished. If God forgave sin without administering justice, then he's no longer God. And this is where some might ask the question, well, in light of God's holiness and his righteousness, how can God show mercy and still be just? That's where Christ comes in. Christ is the answer. He's everything. Christ is the gospel. Christ is the message. God is holy and he will not abide by unholy creatures. God is righteous and he cannot and will not and will never ignore sin. And so God expresses his justice perfectly and completely at the cross by pouring 100% of the deserved wrath of God for our sin onto the perfect sacrifice of his son. That is the marvel and the wonder and the miracle of God's plan of salvation. That his justice and his anger towards your sin is fully expressed. And yet you never feel any of it. 
His justice is glorified because in the suffering of Christ, we do see that the wages of sin is death. We do see the white hot purity of God Almighty and his righteous holy fury against sin. And certainly at the cross, we see what we were saved from. His justice is fully displayed for the world to see and because of the cross, his mercy may be fully displayed to us at the highest level possible that we become fellow heirs with Jesus Christ himself that all that Christ has now becomes ours as well. And salvation displays the power of God. All of these toward the Father's glory. Salvation displays the power of God In the Garden of Eden, Satan routed all of mankind, and ever since then, we have been defeated. We're O for a billion. He led us all into sin. Satan is a dark angel with tremendous power, tremendous might. 1 Peter 5 says he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. In fact, Satan is so powerful that he made himself what Ephesians 2 calls the prince of the power of the air and what 2 Corinthians 4 calls the God of this world. No human being has ever beaten Satan. Ask the 100 billion that have died so far in human history. And in fact, Satan is so powerful that he genuinely, genuinely believes that he has a shot at defeating God. He thinks he has a chance. And the ultimate way that Satan sought to defeat God, listen carefully, was to keep Jesus from successfully completing his mission of dying on the cross for the sins of all who would believe. Because if Jesus doesn't die on the cross, then there's no kingdom. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan tempted Jesus to just skip the cross and rule the world with him. In Matthew 16, Peter tried to dissuade Jesus, tried to turn him back from going to his death on the cross, and and Jesus rebuked him. What did he say? Get behind me, Satan. And all along the way, the closer the cross came, the closer to Calvary the act of Christ came, now Satan pulled out every weapon. He pulled out all the stops to try to convince Jesus to not go through with his father's plan. The betrayal of a close friend, Judas. The loneliness of all of his friends running away at his arrest. His humiliation, his whipping, his beating, his indignation towards him. Denial by his very best friend, Peter. Jesus even told Peter at his arrest that if he desired, he could call upon 12 legions of angels to rescue him. And that is precisely what Satan wanted Jesus to do. Because then... The redemptive plan of God foretold all the way from Genesis 3 fails. Prophecy fails. Forgiveness fails. God's salvation fails. And you go to hell because there was no one to pay for your sin. But Jesus, in the mightiest display of the power of God of all time, fully God and fully human, goes down in history as the one who defeated Satan. Empowered by his father, And the Father receives glory and honor and adulation and ultimately Satan and all his demonic forces and all humanity who has continued following him will be cast into the lake of fire, utterly defeated for all eternity. Oh, how the Father is exalted and glorified in the plan of salvation accomplished at the cross. His holiness, his righteousness, his mercy, his love, his justice, his power highlighted and featured and displayed. 
And so the Bible's main point is the Father's glory. Christ's main point is the Father's glory. Salvation's main point is the Father's glory. So what does this mean concerning the objective evidence of the assurance of your salvation? Here's our main point. You may have assurance of salvation because God's chief concern is not for you. God's chief concern is for his own glory. It's not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for his own glory and exaltation. And the Bible bears this out very clearly. Psalm 106, 47, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we, this is the purpose, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. The purpose of salvation is to be a people which gives glory to God. Isaiah 43, 7, God says that everyone who is called by his name was created for his glory. Psalm 79, 9, oh, this is, this is, jaw-dropping help us O god of our salvation for the glory of your name deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake why is the father's glory an objective assurance of salvation because if god fails to gather you and complete the work of salvation in you he will lose glory and god has never lost everything especially glory And therefore, he will not lose you. The center and the core and the foundation of salvation is that it brings us out of the state in which we give God no glory and puts us into the state in which we do give God glory. Now, before we remain too long in the lofty heights of theological contemplations, along with giving you assurance, what does the Father's glory mean for you today? The entire purpose of your salvation is to glorify God. So how is salvation proven in our own hearts? How are we given certainty? Well, because now the supreme goal and the objective and the mission and the ambition in the true regenerate Christian's life is to live to the glory of God. And if this is the case, then this is the question we ask when we do anything. It's a very simple question. Is this bringing glory to my Father? Is this bringing glory to my Father? Every question you could ask, every possible decision you could make, everything from work ethic to your marriage, to your family, to your social media posts, to your time management, is this bringing glory to my Father? Makes it a pretty easy way to make decisions, does it not? If you find yourself rarely, if ever, concerned about the glory of God, then self-evaluation is the order of the day and do it fast. But if you find yourself deeply concerned about the glory of God, then praise the Lord that your assurance is being lived out. When the completed Westminster Confession of Faith was presented to the House of Lords and the House of Commons, it was done so with great pomp and circumstance and it was presented along with a speech by one of the members of the Westminster Assembly, a Mr. White of Dorchester. And he said, We hope it is manifest to your consciences that herein we seek not ourselves or private interests, but the glory of God. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, 
but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. God will be faithful. He will not lose you because his glory depends on it. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, how comforting it is to know that you so filled with glory and so determined to receive the glory that is rightly due your name, you have chosen in your graciousness and in your kindness to use us as reflections of your glory, to use us as those that would demonstrate and highlight your holiness and your righteousness and your love and your mercy and all the things that we see in you because of salvation. And so, Lord, we leave this place assured. We leave this place confident in Christ. But that is only assurance that is available to the one who has professed faith in Christ and who has repented of sin and turned away from our wickedness and turned alone to Christ and thus find assurance that their future is secured in the Lord Jesus because of the cross. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.